Thank you, Lucy. Um, good morning, everybody. My name's David. It's lovely to see you all. Now, up the back, there'll be an outline of the, of the talk, if taking notes is helpful for you. Also, just um, on each week when you come in, if you look right at that doorway, there's a Bible. So if you don't have a Bible on your phone, just make sure each week you come in, you pick one up, because we're going to be working through it together, and it's great to have it in front of you. There's also some transcripts that would be made available. Uh, and that may be available up the back, depending on the photocopier. See, now, expecting unex- the unexpected is not a bad piece of wisdom. If you expect the unexpected, what are you going to do? You're going to be more ready for plans to change at the last minute and open to adapt, right, when, when surprises happen. But here's a tip. I think expecting the expected is actually a far better piece of wisdom. When you turn up to print your sermon on a Sunday morning and it's been humid for three days, expect a paper jam and that's one of the reasons why the outlines may be available up the back depending if the photocopier got its act together in time. But another thing you might think of is, is if you expect something, right, the whole point of expecting something is if you expect something, you can plan in advance for how you deal with it. When it turns up, you're ready. You're not flustered or freaked out. You're not taken off guard or left with nothing to say, lost for a response. You're ready because you're expecting it. You're ready to do what you need to do. You're ready to say whatever it is you need to say. You're ready to endure what it is that you need to endure and celebrate what you need to celebrate. And so the key question I want us to think about as we look through this passage today is, what should you and I be expecting as Christians? especially as Christians who carry the gospel with them. Well, for this term, we're going to be resuming, as you've already picked up from the service so far, our journey through the book of Acts and that we left off in 2021. Now, the book of Acts, in summary, is basically about how God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, grows the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ through his apostles in the first few decades after Jesus' resurrection. And the key verse, as we've already heard in our family spot this morning, is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which Jesus says to his apostles. It's on the screen. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's how the book begins. And so, so far in Acts, the gospel is spread to Judea and Samaria. And as it has, the gospel has been received predominantly by Jewish people the people for whom the message was given originally. The conversion of the centurion Cornelius, however, in Acts chapter 10, makes it clear for the early believers that they need to understand that God's bringing the Gentiles in too. He wants them to be saved. By the time we get to Antioch in Syria, in chapter 12, this tiny trickle of Gentile believers coming into the church is starting to become a stream. Well, that stream is about to now become a raging river. And the turning point for that is the mission that we're going to be looking at, particularly over the next couple of weeks. But what we're also going to see is that the opening of the kingdom of God to the Gentiles is going to bring trouble. Well, chapter 13 begins by showing us that God is still, as he has always been, the driving force behind mission. The great Gentile mission 
begins with a prayer meeting at Antioch in Syria. Now, the text seems to suggest that a number of key leaders in the church were meeting together and worship to worship and pray. But we're specifically told not just what their names are, but what God had gifted them to do. We're told that they're prophets and teachers. These were people, in summary, whose role was to minister God's word to his people. God's word is going to be a big theme today and in the coming weeks. So they were fasting. Now, that was often something that people did. Sometimes they would do it when they were trying, were repenting of things. But often it is what God's people did. You can see this through the Old Testament. When they're trying to discern what God's will is. So this prayer meeting was probably about them asking God, what do you want us to do next? Well, most likely through one of the prophets gathered there, God answers in that moment. Look at there, verse 2. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. See, what God wants, the church should want. And they do. And they go, right, that's what you're doing, we're sending them. They're on their way, go, go. You know, sometimes we can think of mission, I think, as one of the many things that the churches do, right? So we do church services, we study the Bible, we do mission, right? Now we might do them well, we may not do them well, we might do some of the many things that we're meant to do as churches, we might neglect some things a little bit. But one of the things that we're going to see as we look through the book of Acts in the coming weeks is that if we simply think that mission is just one of the things that the church does, we severely downplay its importance. The church doesn't have a mission. The mission of God has a church. The church is established as a result of God's missionary enterprise in sending, which is where we get the word mission from, sending his son into the world to save it. God is the first, the ultimate missionary. And we are his witnesses, his ambassadors. We shine his light. We carry his gospel. Mission is not an instrument of the church. Our church is an instrument of God's mission. And when we understand it that way, the conviction that we've got to go do it and that it needs to colour everything we do really has to hit home. Mission should drive the church and our church. It is nothing less than living out what God's calling is for us. So the Spirit, with the cooperation of the church, sends Saul and Barnabas on their way and they sail to Cyprus which was where Barnabas was actually from. Their first step is to meet Barnabas' people with the gospel. And they first land on the east coast of the island and their first stop reveals a pattern that we're going to see again and again through the missionary journeys. Look at verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. So the synagogue was where um, the Jewish people spread throughout the, the world. Whenever there was enough of them, they would be able to build a synagogue and then they would meet together and hear the scriptures read and pray together. Now, remember last year when we were looking at Romans 
We saw this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And what we need to say is that when Paul says first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, he meant it. And it's a theological point that expressed itself in the sequence of Paul's mission when he actually practiced it. There is, in other words, what it's trying to say is there is a deep theological appropriateness to him announcing first to the Jewish people that their long-expected Messiah had actually come. We Gentiles just have the wonderful privilege of being able to share in what we need to understand is the Jewish Messiah. Well, they preach their way across the island. And when they get to Paphos, which is on the other side, the Roman capital of the island, an incident occurs, and this also sets up another pattern that we're going to see repeated through these chapters. So let's have a look at verse 6 and following. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Now, we're doing narrative here. So that, this is a kind of text where it's, it's telling you the story of what happened. And narrative is constructed in a certain way. And it's especially important when you're reading biblical narrative to notice how people are introduced. All right? It sets expectations. And you could, could not get more contrasting introductions than to these two people. So the first guy, we're told, is a Jewish sorcerer, right? Now, those two things should be a contradiction in terms. They should never, ever come together. Now, the word for sorcerer here is the same word used of Matthew when he speaks of the Magi who visited Jesus, right? Now, those men were probably astrologers who were often considered wise men in the ancient pagan world. So at best, this man used divination to try to know God's will from the stars. That's the best case scenario for this guy and that's not good. But at worst, he was an occultist as well who also tried to use spells and curses to manipulate spirits into doing his bidding. Now either way, if you'll pardon the pun, as a Jew, he shouldn't have had a bar of such things. But it was worse. Luke tells us plainly that he was a false prophet. It's as if he was a, the embodiment of the corruption of what a Jew should be. But if that was not enough for an intro, his name is given as Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. An ironic contrast. Jesus was a, not an uncommon name, but Luke knows who he's writing to, right? No doubt Bar-Jesus, who we later hear is also known as Elimas, which is um, a word that means learned, wasn't a dummy. He might have been wicked, but he wasn't dumb, and that's why he was entrenched as an advisor to the second man that we meet. Let's have a look at how he's introduced. Sergius Paulus is the Roman consul in charge of Cyprus. He's not Jewish. Right? But in contrast to the sorceress false prophet, Paulus is introduced as an intelligent man. He's given a compliment just when we're told about him. 
It's very positive. And it's not just saying that this guy was smart. What Luke is conveying is that he was an inquiring and thoughtful person. And that is why he sends for Barnabas and Saul, because what is it we're told? He wants to hear the word of God. And that's what intelligent and thoughtful people should want to do. Now, the scene is set for an encounter, on the one hand, with a man who knew God but refused to listen to his word, and on the other hand, a man who didn't know God but actively sought out God's word that he might hear it. Well, as we might expect, LMS sees opposition here and he is completely against Paul and Barnabas and he tries to shut this whole thing down. But I want to say that it's actually a little bit more sinister than that. He's not just a guy going, hey, I'm the consultant here, shut up and go away. It was more personal. We're told that he tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Now, the word turn there is the same word that is translated as pervert later on in the same passage, or corrupt. In other words, he opposed the apostles, but did you see who his true target was? Sergius Paulus. And his goal is to make sure this guy doesn't believe the gospel. And so Paul, the apostle, but more profoundly, the Holy Spirit of God who filled him sees who the true agent is behind this man and he calls him out. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elamas and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now, the hand of the Lord is against you and you are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. So, Elamas may have claimed to be a sorcerer with power, but he had no hope if he thought he was going to match power with the spirit of the living God. And so immediately we're told mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. He's blinded. Well, not surprisingly, Elamas' attempt to stop Sergius Paulus from believing fails at this point, <laughs> um, fails quite dismally. But here's the point I want to make is it's not just because he saw something spectacular and went, wow, I'm joining that team. It's because that sign reinforced what he had heard. Look what, what verse 12 says. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. You notice those two things together? It was the teaching, it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus that actually struck Sergius Paulus so powerfully and caused him to believe. The cursing of Elamas sealed the deal. Now, I kind of said at the beginning, I wanted us to think, what should we expect? And I also told you that another pattern was going to be set up. What is the pattern that we see here? That the gospel of Jesus comes powerfully to places. And when it does, it meets both hostile opposition but also joyful acceptance. 
But there's something else that we need to see here as Christians is the nature of that opposition. We're going to see later on, it's personal, it's envious, it's stuff like that. What Elimas introduces to is that it faces spiritual opposition. That our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but the principles and powers of this world as well. Expect that. But also expect that it's going to be met with joyful acceptance. It's what the gospel does. When the powerful word of God meets a world under the sway of the evil one, you can expect both things. The power of God to win people and a hating world to hate. Well, once again, Paul and his companions set sail. And they head northwest to, from Paphos to Perga, where John heads back to Jerusalem. So, a bit of an aside there. John's there, right? The Apostle John's been kind of hanging around all this time, but he's, a, he's, he's kind of an observer and a helper at this point. And then they go through north, through Pamphylia, and end up about 100 kilometres inland at a different Antioch, which you can see on the screen. And because there was a guy called Antiochus who named lots of cities after himself, and he named this one in a place called um, in Pisidia, which is in western Galatia. So if you've heard of the letter for Galatians, we're starting to enter into their territory. Well, just as they did in Cyprus, they go to the synagogue first. Now, this synagogue visit is going to have two instalments on two different Sabbath Saturdays. Now, we're going to spend most of our time focusing on the first one, the day that the Jews of Pisidian Antioch got to hear what they had been expecting for a long, long time about the Messiah. Now, we didn't have uh, this part read earlier, so make sure you've got your Bibles open um, as we look at this together. Okay, so if you look at the beginning of there in verse 13, right, the apostolic crew, they turn up and they sit down in the synagogue just like you might sit down next to someone here at church with everyone else. And maybe you can picture them there... um, listening to the scriptures being read, just like our Bible reading, a lot of what we do in church is based on what they used to do in synagogues. Um, And the synagogue leaders then warmly invite the apostles to share a word of encouragement for us, brothers. I mean, I kind of think you've got to laugh a little bit at this, don't you? I mean, I expect they didn't need to be asked twice. Should we say, have we got anything we want to say? Yeah, I think they're going, up. I wonder whether Paul looked over at Barnabas and kind of with a bit of a knowing smile as if saying, I got this. Um, and he stands up and he waves for silence and he talks to them. Now, as uh, Dr. David Peterson mentioned at the intro night, this is the only time in the book of Acts where we hear an extended account of what Paul preached when he went and visited the synagogues. We hear about him visiting the synagogues numerous times. This is where we get a glimpse into the sort of thing that he said when he was there. It's reasonable to think that it's a fair example of what he would have taught on those other occasions as well. This is the gospel presentation to the Jews. Now, and I have to say, as I've looked at this over again and over again over the last few weeks, it struck me how wonderful, amazing it would have been been to be a Jew sitting in the synagogue and and hear this for the first time. Now, I want you to imagine yourself doing that. Imagine yourself as a faithful synagogue-attending Jew. And you're away from your homeland, you're away from the temple, you're living in the middle of the idolatrous pagan world, your family may have been there for generations, but your culture and your identity as a Jew has always been strong and your family's striven to maintain that. 
And you go back to Jerusalem whenever you're able to manage it in order to participate in the great festivals that were had there. And so on a, day, on a weekly basis, you meet up with your fellow Jews every Saturday and you do that because you want to be reminded of the law of your God that you don't become a compromiser like Bar Jesus, like LMS, and be reminded of the warnings and promises that are threaded throughout the writings of the law and the prophets that get read to you every week. That's been your world. It was your parents' world. It was your parents' parents' world. It's your parents, you get the pattern. Now, there were also Gentiles at this synagogue as well. Gentiles who'd repudiated the polytheism and the immorality of their own pagan world had heard the truth about God, the God of Israel, and were drawn in to, to be a part of their story, albeit always around the fringes. And then one Saturday, just a regular Saturday, you're turning up, some visiting Jews come in from Jerusalem. And when asked to give a word of encouragement, they tell you this. Now, we're going to look at this speech in a bit more detail in the Sermon Seasons podcast, which is back tomorrow. Um, but this is the gospel that Paul wanted Jewish people to hear. And the good news that Paul has for the Jews, the wonderful news, is that their expectations are just being realised. The great story of their people has come now at last to its long-awaited climax. And so what he does is he begins at the beginning of their story, God's founding of the nation, saving them from Egypt, bringing them to their land. Look at verse 17. The God of the people Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people, notice God's agency in all of this. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. And for about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. So God called them, God saved them, God gave them their inheritance. And then Paul moves to the next critical stage of their story as a people. It began with the people's sinful calling for a king. And God's then providing them with a king of his choosing. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then the people asked for a king. And he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. Now notice that. He's told them already there was 40 years in the wilderness when they were disobedient. And it's like there's a 40-year wilderness punishment under, under Saul. Um, but after removing Saul, he made David... Notice that he removed Saul. He made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. Now, this may be a summary. Paul might be giving us a, Luke might be giving us a summary of what Paul said. But everyone there knew what comes with this historical detail. The Jews gathered, and any Gentile converts who'd been there for any period of time would instantly understand more at the mentioning of King David than just there was a point in history where we had a king named David. Right? Because David's name carried something with it. David was the dynastic king of Israel. His line was the only true line. Sure, they'd had other kings in the past couple of hundred years um, following the return from exile, but they knew the difference between them and the legitimate kings. 
the line of David. So when David gets mentioned, the concept of Messiah gets attached to it. The king that God promised, who would come from the line of David and who would rule with justice and righteousness forever. That's what they were waiting, taught to expect, wait for. An everlasting king over an everlasting kingdom. The whole Jewish people had been waiting expectantly for him for hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, so far, so familiar. But it's now that Paul drops his word of encouragement. The Davidic king has arrived. 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour. The Saviour. Jesus as he promised. Now that would have been the shake the room moment. You would have not been able to stop the murmurs of shocked responses amongst the congregation. But the thing is, there had been false messiahs before. Their Jewish ears would have led their minds to go, oh, he's saying the messiahs come? What, What am I expecting to see around this? What have I learned from the scriptures of the true signs of the coming of the Messiah that I can measure against this claim? Foremost among those signs would be that they're expecting a prophet to come who would point to the king's arrival. That's what the prophets told them. Well, that's where Paul goes next. That's been fulfilled too. Before the coming of Jesus, before the coming of Jesus, the precursor, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. So the promised prophet turns up and he does his pointing. The king's coming. But then the truly stunning news in this word of encouragement comes out. There was an important part of the Messiah's story that still had to be fulfilled. That Jerusalem would reject its own king. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognise Jesus and yet in condemning him, notice this part, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Remember, this is in a synagogue on a Sabbath and they've just read the prophets. There's a message for his hearers in this. The message has been sent to us, people are saying, and you spent your lives coming here every week and listening to these promises. You should be expecting this next part, even if it is shocking. Verse 28, Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed, And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, and they are now his witnesses to our people. Their king, Jesus, was handed over to the Gentiles to be killed. They crucified him and buried him. God was the one who raised him from the dead. And that fact is decisive. A king who has died and risen again is truly the everlasting king whose kingdom will reign forever. 
And it's the many witnesses of this resurrected Messiah who are testifying to God's people wherever they are, not least the people sitting in the synagogue that Saturday morning. Verse 32, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Where we've come to the end of the line, all of the stuff your parents spoken about, you're the generation that gets to hear it, see it happen. The wait is over. And Paul then, with a series of scriptures, reminds them of, of what had been fulfilled by Paul, Jesus' resurrection and proclaimed to them that day. I mean, imagine hearing this. You're sitting there in the synagogue that day. Your king has at last come. But now comes the challenging part. And this is true whether the gospel is being proclaimed to a Jew or a Gentile alike. And that is that the gospel is not just a series of facts that you might want to know about. It's an announcement that you need to respond to. That's the nature of the message. And there are consequences depending on how you respond to the announcement. On the one hand, with this gospel, God's opened a door. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know, verse 38, that that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Notice that emphasis? A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. This is where the rubber hits the road. Their king is their saviour. His death and resurrection achieved something for them that they need to embrace. He comes proclaiming forgiveness of sins. He's the means by which his people can be set free from their sin. He is fundamentally necessary. I think that's the point. That Jesus is fundamentally necessary. The story of the Jewish people has a climax and is not complete without that climax. Why a Jewish person that doesn't acknowledge their Messiah has not finished the story. Jesus brings a new righteousness, notice that they were not able to obtain merely by following the law that Moses had laid down for them. But now if they believe the good news, it's wonderful, right, that the door of of freedom and forgiveness has been thrown open as their punishment's been taken by Jesus for them, by their king. But if they don't, the news comes with a warning. Verse 40, take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. Now that quote is from the prophet Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, if you know the book, Habakkuk was a prophet who kept complaining. And he was complaining about the people just kept doing wicked stuff and God seemed to be doing nothing about it. So it's called in this um, call and response kind of thing. Habakkuk complains, God answers. And this is the very first one. God says to Habakkuk, just wait and watch. Those who sow in the wind will reap the whirlwind. What Paul is saying here is he's saying, follow the king or you're going to face the king. Well, that's the speech. 
probably not what the synagogue leaders expected they were going to hear when they said, you've got a word of encouragement for us, brothers? Wow. But with this news, the Jews face a turning point. Believe the message. It's happened. So believe the message or be judged for rejecting it and being like the people that Habakkuk was complaining about. And understandably, of course, this has got their minds reeling, right? This is just, there's a lot to take in. And when the synagogue breaks up that day, everything is a stir. This is big news. And so they're invited by the leaders to come back, say, look, come back next week and let's hear more about it. But the cat is out of the bag um, and a week's a long time. So, so groups of them follow Paul and Barnabas and then you can't shut them up. They're talking about them, they're asking questions and Paul and Barnabas are saying, stick with this, stick with the grace of God, right? That's going to sound familiar when we get to Galatians sometime, isn't it? Well, as I said, seven days can be a long time and this is big news. And so that means that by the time of the second Sabbath, the second Saturday, the Jews have told all of their friends and family in the city, And guess what? The Gentiles did too. The Gentiles that were there at that synagogue, they've done the same. And so that next Saturday, everyone turns up. And note how Luke puts it in verse 44, to hear the word of God. But the same leaders now that asked him to speak a week ago, the same leaders that invited them to come back seven days later, now get a change of heart. Their interest in hearing what Paul has to say is turned to jealousy as they see the size of the crowd. So now what's happened to the word for them? The word's not important anymore. And they quickly turn hostile. It's their reputations they care about. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on them. They turned a deaf ear to the word And they had ignored Paul's warning. Take care, he said. Don't do what God's people of old did. Follow the king or face his judgment. Well, they've rejected the word. And so the turning point is reached. And a new pattern is set that will also characterise the mission to come. The gospel goes to the Jews first, but if they reject it, the message then goes to the Gentiles. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. They are not ashamed of the gospel at all, are they? God's opened the door of his kingdom. No one's going to close that. It was always his plan to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. It's what God promised he would do through the prophets. It's what the risen Jesus told his disciples he would do before he ascended to heaven. If God's people, or those calling themselves God's people, don't want the eternal life he offers, well, God's going to take his salvation to those who do want it. If his own people's ears are closed to his word, he will open the ears of others. When the Gentiles heard this, look at this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. 
the gospel can't be contained. But it can and it will be opposed. The Jewish leaders of Pisidian Antioch gang together with the Gentile leaders to stir up persecution for Paul and Barnabas and they're driven out of the city. But look at what their response is. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them. They didn't slink away with their tail between their legs, humiliated and ashamed. They went, that's your problem. You don't want this gospel? It is on you. And they went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You know, there's something I don't know about that line, and that is, is that talking about Paul and Barnabas? Or is it talking about the ones still in Pisidian Antioch? I think it might be the second. Well, I think there's something powerful for us in their example. So they're not flustered, they're bold, they weren't timid, they were filled with joy because the message really is good news. There's a pattern to mission that we should expect to see and they expected to see it. And so they expected the expected. And these are some of those things. First, the God is the agent behind his mission. It's his great task, the living God. He's going to drive it. He will do it. Expect him to. He will reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's God's plan to redeem the world that he's made. Expect him to do it. And he will do it. And how will he do it? Through his people, through us, empowered by his spirit. So I think the thing I'd say is, what should you expect? Every single one of you who knows Jesus, expect to be used on that mission. Ask to be used in that mission. Second, the good news has got an edge. Expect it to cut. Right? It is into a world that is hostile to God. That's what we take the message into. It will confront the world. We looked at this last week. It will call people to repent. And not everyone's going to want to do that. So when people are opposed to you or, or don't like what you've got to say, don't be surprised by that. And as much as it is in your heart, ask for God's strength not to let it intimidate you. But third, the good news is the power of God for salvation. And I think this is the bit that we need to especially hear as we face our hostile society. I think we know, I think if I say expect for people to oppose you, you can go, oh yeah. I'm expecting that. In fact, I'm expecting that every time I breathe the word Jesus, right? I expect that when I say that I'm a Christian, right? I'm expecting that and whoa, I get it. But do you expect this other bit? Do you expect God to save people? Do you expect that people are going to respond to the gospel? Do you expect that people will be saved by it? Do you expect that people will rejoice that you told them? You should That's what God put the gospel into the world to do. The gospel may appear to be foolish to some, it might stink to them, but to those whom God has called, and he has, and you don't know who they are, it's the power of God, and that's the way they're going to hear it. It's the wisdom of God. They will be going, this makes the most sense of the world that I can think of, and it is the aroma of life, and they will rejoice. So be bold on the one hand, but be courageous on the other and expectant. Let me pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful passage in the book of Acts. Father, help us to be bold. Help us to expect you to do what you've said you're going to do and that you will do it through us. And we rejoice in the fact that in your kindness you've opened our hearts to hear that message. We pray to the depth of our being that the people we bring that message to will be the ones who respond with joy. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.